Hi, thank you very much for tuning into this Bible study. Today we're going to be going through Acts chapter 18. Acts 18 covers quite a big chunk of time in the Apostle Paul's life. Um, we see him in Corinth for a year and a half and then he travels on and we're going to see the conclusion of his second missionary journey and if you blink you can miss it. He actually starts his third missionary journey before Acts chapter 18 concludes. Um, and I'll make sure to pause so we can see that and we'll talk about that. But there's a lot that happens in this chapter uh, and there's a lot that I'm going to talk about and dig in deep. Uh, so before we get into all that, why don't we bow our heads and pray. Lord, we surrender this time over to you. I pray that each person listening, Lord, that they'd have open ears and a soft heart to be receptive to what you would say to us. I pray, Lord, that it would be your message, not mine, that comes out and that you will speak through me. We surrender this time to you and we honor you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, the big picture uh, idea that we're going to come back to and I'm going to hit at the very end, what does it mean to serve God? What does that look like? We see the Apostle Paul and he's serving God by going on his second and his third missionary journey. He's going around and he's planting churches. Are we all called to do that? Is that what it means to be called by God, to serve? Or are there other ways that we can serve? Do we all need to be the Billy Grahams and aspire to do that? Or are there other callings for us? How does God call us? What are we called to do in being good uh, followers of Christ? And that's the question that uh, I want you to have in the back of your mind. And we're going to see examples of many different people uh, that have all these different roles to play in Acts 18 uh, that are examples of different ways that the church is following God and how they are all used as one body serving one purpose with many, many different roles. So we'll come back to that. So historical cultural context. Where are we in Acts. We are in around 8050 to 8053, and that time frame is what we're looking at. Um, what has been happening in looking at, at Acts? The Apostle Paul is on a second missionary journey. He originally had planned to go to, um, and I'll, I'll pull the map up here. He had originally planned to go what is called um, Asia, it's modern day um, Turkey, uh, but the Spirit of the Lord led him through a vision to go over to Macedonia. And so that's what we saw in Acts 16 and 17. We saw him go to um, Philippi is the first town that he goes to. In Philippi, he is beaten and imprisoned. Uh, and then at the end of that, actually, the jailer and his entire family are saved uh, because of, of what happened. Because Paul was uh, beaten and imprisoned because of that interaction, he got to uh, witness to this jailer. And because of that, his entire family was, fee was freed. Then he goes on to um, uh, Thessalonica uh, as well as to Berea. And in both Thessalonica as well as Berea, um, he comes in and he teaches in the synagogue. And at the beginning of his time there, many people are receptive to him and excited and he plants churches there. But then what ends up happening, which is very common as we've seen as we've gone through Acts, is that there are those who do not want to change. They are not receptive to the world word. Their hearts are hardened and they get um, very defensive and they stir up the mob. And then in Thessalonica, 
Um, Paul actually has to escape in the middle of the night uh, to, to escape a mob that wants to uh, um, beat him and who knows what else. So then he goes into Berea, which we saw last week, um, which the Bereans, Acts 17.11 is where you see the Bereans were more noble um, than, than the others in that they were receptive to the word that Paul shared and they searched the scriptures daily to make sure what he said was true. But still the same thing in Berea happens where um, people are receptive at the beginning and they're open to it and a new church is planted, but then uh, as is the case, um, people don't want to change and they get angry that Paul is preaching something different than what they're used to and they do not want to change, they do not want to hear it. And so yet again in Berea, he is forced to leave uh, and he goes and comes to a Athens, which we saw that last week. And it's such a common thing, both uh, in Paul's day as well as today. People who do not want to change, they are happy in their sin, they are happy in their lifestyle, they are happy the way they are. And when someone comes and presents the gospel, the good news, they don't see it as that because in their mind, they're going to be required to change. And we as a, a, a species are very, very controlling people. We want to control our entire world. We want to control our environment. I am very much this way. And what happens when you surrender your life over to God is, is that you have to let go. People don't want to let go. They fear that if they do that, God will call them to be like Paul and to, uh, and to be like the young rich ruler where Jesus says that you have to sell everything you own uh, and then follow him. And that may be the calling for some, but the point is, is that you cannot find peace and true joy until you know what it feels like to truly surrender everything over to God. So it's understandable that you are going to see anywhere the gospel is preached, you're going to see people who are changed, but you're also going to see people who are angry and have their hearts hardened even further. It's a guarantee. Jesus even said that he, he is divisive. He came to divide. And, and that's his character. Uh, going down on a tangent. Okay, so then he goes to Athens, and Athens he experiences something a little bit different than he did up north, um, in that in Athens, they are somewhat more receptive to listening to his ideas. And the reason being is, is that Athens prides itself on being open-minded to absolutely everything. And so Paul stays there for a period of time in Athens, and he starts up a church. Then he goes on to Corinth, and that's where we find him now. And I want to give a little bit of a historical uh, background on Corinth. Corinth, um, so from a, 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 if you look at a map, this is all modern-day Greece, but at the time, um, you had the southern province, uh, and then you had uh, Macedonia up north. And so Corinth is the hub. It is the... Um, the capital, so to speak, of both Roman influence, but also for trade. And I'm going to read a few things that give us a little bit of historical contract, uh, context of uh, Corinth. Okay, Corinth was situated on the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow neck of land that joins central Greece and the Peloponnese, uh, the Peloponnese, excuse me, the peninsula that forms the southern part of mainland Greece. It had two harbors, one on the east, uh, excuse me, one on the east of the isthmus and the other on the west. It had a three and one half mile long railroad of wooden logs over which ships were dragged from one harbor to the other. Eventually, a canal was actually built that exists there today, uh, but it wasn't at this time. The main north and south land routes uh, also converged here. Thus, Corinth became a prosperous city 
having the feel of an economic boom town. It was the center of the worship of Aphrodite, uh, the Greek goddess of love, and had a temple with a thousand sacred prostitutes. From the 5th century BC on the verb to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. Corinth was such a sexually immoral place that to Corinthianize uh, was a term that was used to describe being sexually immoral. We'll come back to that. Uh, Paul reports that he came to Corinth in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now we learn that from 1 Corinthians 2.3. And I want to pause right here real quick to point out something that's really cool. So the structure of the New Testament, let me leave this open like that. And so you have, I'm going on a tangent here, but it's a good one. Okay, so you have the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Bible. And uh, right about here, we have the Old Testament, then you have the New Testament. The structure of the New Testament is you start with the Gospels. What's the Gospel? The Gospel translates Gospel means good news. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the Gospels according to these individuals. These are the testaments of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the in-person, first-hand experiences of what Jesus did, what he said, etc. Then after that, you have the book of Acts. That's what we're going through right now. This is written by the apostle Luke, who writes about the acts of apostolic men. This is the foundation of the church. The reason why this comes next after the Gospels is the Gospels end at Pentecost with the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and you see Jesus ascend, right? And so then the start of the church is Pentecost. Acts picks it up right there. But what happens after Acts? The whole rest of the New Testament are all epistles. These are all letters. These are all letters that are written back and forth from the apostles. So now I'm gonna pull up um, something that we've used many times before. And this is looking at Acts, this is a chart that shows uh, Paul's life and the letters that he writes. So Paul does write quite a few letters that make up our New Testament. And we're going to see, if you look, so we have the full spectrum of Paul's life. We saw his first missionary journey. We are currently in his second missionary journey right now. It's going to jump into his third here before we're done today. But if you look up, while he is in Corinth, in this chunk we're going to look at today, he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Thessalonians, we just covered the fact that he was in Thessalonica. He was just there. At the beginning in Acts 16 and 17, he was in Thessalonica. So now when he is down in Corinth for a year and a half, he writes letters back up to the church in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, and these are words of encouragement, words of rebuke, words going to based on the correspondence going back and forth. While he is also here, there is question that in Corinth the first time that he's going to write to the Galatians. We're not really sure when he wrote the letter to the Galatians, but as you recall, he went to uh, Galatia. He was there on his first missionary journey. He hits it again on his second, and I believe he hits it again on his third. The Galatia region in which you had... Uh, um, uh, uh, Pisidian Antioch, um, I'm not remembering the other towns, but there's three or four towns that he hits on his first missionary journey, and he passes through them each time that he comes through. So it's logical that he was writing letters to those churches. 
on his third missionary journey, he's going to come back to Corinth. And when he's back in Corinth again, he is going to write to the Romans. And in his third missionary journey, he also writes back to the Corinthians from Ephesus. From Ephesus, we'll see this. He's going to write back to the Corinthians and do Corinthians 1 and 2. Why do I say this? Why do I explain this? Because Acts shows kind of a bigger view of Paul and where he's going. We can then look into the letters themselves to get more context of the time that he spends there. So why did I go on that little tangent? Because when uh, in this explanation that we have of uh, Corinth, the author of this book references 1 Corinthians 2.3 in which Paul actually says, when he's writing back to the Corinthians, he says, in weakness and fear and with much trembling, he first came to Corinth. Why? Why was he feeling that way? Well, it's going to explain it. This is understandable considering the pain he had endured in the last few stops. I just described it. I mean, he was beaten, imprisoned, had to escape in the middle of the night. He didn't have good uh, endings to each of his locations, though the gospel was preached and churches were planted. Despite the divine call to Macedonia, he had been driven out of three Macedonian cities in which he ministered. From Athens, he was dismissed with polite contempt rather than being violently driven out. He was worried about the situation in Thessalonica and eagerly awaited the arrival of Silas and Timothy from there. We learn this by reading 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, 5. Again, this is a letter that he wrote while in Corinth to Thessalonica. Paul may not have anticipated encountering much receptivity to his message in Corinth because of its prosperity and reputation for immorality. But he stayed here for over a year and a half and saw the founding of a large and gifted, if volatile, church. It is plain from his two letters to the Corinthians that the church which he planted there caused him many a headache. It was turbulent and unruly, but it was undoubtedly alive and remains so to this day. We're going to learn that if you read Corinthians. Now, I took some time actually this morning and I read all of 1 Thessalonians. It's only five chapters, but it's really cool to have the context. Read Acts, finish this study, uh, not of all of Acts, but of Acts 18, because by the end of it, we're, we're going to be all the way back um, in um, Antioch and beyond. But finish his time in Corinth and go and read 1 Thessalonians, and you're going to read a letter that he wrote while he was in Corinth to the church that he was just at. And the thing that's really cool is, is that you get some context there, but there's also, there's, there is meat to be found. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18, and going on to chapter 5, well, that's where we get the whole idea of the rapture. The rapture of the church is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 5 goes on and talks about the end times and what the end's going to look like. And it's because of that one letter that we learn that information, that we learn about the rapture of the church because of Paul's letter. It's just cool stuff, and, and I get excited by it. And, and for me personally, this is something new that I am learning, is that I've heard sermons on Acts. I've heard sermons on Thessalonians. But to be able to go through and tie them together really adds value to me and being able to understand the life that Paul led. Okay, so that's it for this book. I still want to add a little bit more um, cultural context 
Um, no, it's not there. It is on my notes here. Okay, so Corinth. Corinth was considered, um, it's basically the Amsterdam of the modern world or Vegas, excuse me, of the Near Eastern world. Um, back in that time, you could call it either Amsterdam or um, Vegas in that the moral depravity was not only uh, rampant, it was celebrated. So you heard it mentioned just briefly that there was uh, a temple to uh, Athena and, uh, or excuse me, Aphrodite that was up on the, um, it's called the Acro Corinth, which uh, I'm gonna put a, a photo up here. This is a temple to Aphrodite that was up on the top of this massive rock structure. And because of the prosperity um, that existed in Corinth, uh, mixed with other elements and, and the worship of Aphrodite, which is the goddess of love, the way they celebrated that was with prostitution. And there were sailors from both the east and the west that would come to the ports and they would go and worship the gods and celebrate, celebrate Aphrodite by going to sleep with a prostitute in this temple. And it's still there to this day. So, uh, it, it, man, I'm... I don't know how, what it would have been like in those days um, to be Paul and to be going to um, a town that, that celebrated, celebrated, not just practiced sin, but celebrated sin to such an extent. Um, it's something to think about in just understanding the historical cultural context. So we do know that Greek geographer Strabo wrote in 20 AD, so this is before Paul was even there. In 20 AD, we have this information. So this is 30 years prior to this. The temple, temple of Aphrodite was once so rich that it had acquired more than a thousand prostitutes denoted by both men, donated by both men and women to the service of the goddess. And because of them, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. The ship captains would send fortunes there. And so the proverb says, the voyage to Corinth isn't for just any man. Uh, again, a little excerpt that I found. Because of its great wealth and trans, uh, transitory population, Corinth had a reputation for luxury and inhabited pleasures. This reputation was further bolstered by the city's association with Aphrodite. Her image appeared on the city's coin, and Corinth had at least three temples to the goddess of love, including one on the very high summit of the Acro-Corinth where she held a shield before her like a mirror. In addition, the harbors had their own temples to the goddess of love. Though modern scholars debate whether ritual prostitution had ceased by the time of Paul's arrival, there is little doubt that prostitution would have thrived. Brothels have been excavated in several Roman cities, including Pompeii and Ephesus. So the point that I'm getting at is, is that from a historical cultural context, this was a very secular town that uh, had idol worship, worshipped um, all sorts of different gods, um, and prostitution was rampant. And in the midst of that, an amazing thriving church is started. So now after uh, what likely was a 20-minute introduction, let's actually open up our Bibles. So we're going to open up to... Acts chapter 18, verse 1. 
and I'm going to read through and then come back uh, and, and digest and talk about it. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Point Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have so many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Okay, so let's go back and uh, uh, dig into this. There are so many names that are mentioned here. It took me a long time just to go through and look up all these different names. First of all, you have Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, also, often they go back and forth. Sometimes it's mentioned Priscilla and Aquila, sometimes Aquila and Priscilla. The thing that's interesting about this pair, they become good friends with Paul. We hear here that they were living in Rome, and then something happens in Rome in which Claudius, who is the emperor, uh, declared, ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So let's actually uh, uh, read on that just a little bit. Yeah, so, yep, good, good, good. The Expositor's Commentary, uh, page 479. Okay, Aquila and Priscilla had been forced to leave Rome because of the Edict of Claudius. An explanation, an explosion, excuse me, an explosion, uh, expulsion. I can read. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Explosion doesn't make sense. An expulsion order proclaimed during the ninth year of Emperor Claudius's reign, January 25th AD 49 to January 24th 50 AD. It was directed against the Jews in Rome to put down the riots arising within the Jewish community there. At the instigation of Christus, according to the Roman historian Suetonius. So it was at the instigation of Christus. Many take this to be a reference to Christ, where the dispute in the Jewish community was between those who accepted his messiahship and those that did not. We do not know whether Aquila and Priscilla had any part of these riots, either as agitators or as victims. So in Rome, already at this point, you have tension that is happening because of Christ. Exactly what Paul has been preaching is that you have Jews who believe he's the Messiah and Jews that don't, and this is causing huge division. And the emperor 
Rome was getting upset by this because of this division that was happening. As you recall, Rome wants to keep the peace. They control such, the Roman Empire is huge, and they want to control the peace. This is one of the reasons why, um, when you look back on Christ and and when in, in the end of Matthew, when he goes before the Sanhedrin and then he goes in front of Pontius Pilate, who's the governor in Jerusalem, all Pilate wants is peace. He wants to quell the rebellion. He wants to quell any unrest. And everything that happens is just to simply to keep the peace. So we know in Rome, there's unrest. And so the emperor Claudius is just like, look, Jews, you are kicked out of Rome because you are so, um, there's so much tension and so much commotion within your own party that you're just kicked out. So because of that, we know that Priscilla and Aquila traveled to Corinth. We do not know whether they were believers in Christ before this or when they came to Corinth. We don't know. But we do know that Paul seeks them out. Okay, so that picks us up. Paul went, uh, okay, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. Priscilla and Aquila had a tent-making business. Tabernacles. And there's two different types of tabernacles that they would make. But the point being is, is that this was a trade, a vocation, that the Apostle Paul learned all the way back from his hometown in Tarsus in Cilicia. Okay? So he's using this, this skill set from a vocational purpose. So Paul was a tent maker. He worked to earn his living, and on the Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue. Yep, yep, I already covered that. Um, okay, so it's an interesting element that we see is that we just always assume when we look at the Apostle Paul that he's a missionary. But for a year and a half, he was working and preaching at the same time. That was his role, is, is that he was working to, to have a living, to be able to survive. And he was hanging out with his friends, uh, husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila. It's interesting. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So we see a switch. There comes a point, and, and we know this from context of reading the other chapters, reading the other books, the letters, that with them, Silas and Timothy brought money. They brought a donation to help Paul. So Paul was now able to go full-time into ministry, exclusively now preaching and teaching. So for that period of time in which he needed to, he spent his time working and preaching at the same time. Now, Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia, and with that, a donation that allows him to uh, preach full-time. So... And in classic fashion, we have uh, Paul first preaches to the Jews because the gospel was meant for the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So he starts with the Jews and he gets to the point at which everyone who's going to be saved is saved. Everyone whose heart is hardened is that way. And so then he goes and opens up his message to the Gentiles and he proclaims, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean that from this point on in Acts, he's never going to speak to the Jews again. It just means his time in Corinth is now going to be focused on Gentiles. When we move forward, we will see him yet again talk to Jews and give his message to Jews and Gentiles alike. So Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. 
So it's an interesting element. It's literally right next door to the synagogue is this guy's house, this believer uh, in Jesus, this Christian that has a house and a church is planted and started there. And we're going to learn this by reading um, in an explanation about Titus. Okay, Titus Justus, a resident of Corinth, is mentioned in Acts 18.7 as a worshiper of God, into whose house Paul moved when he was expelled from preaching in the synagogue. His home was next door to the synagogue, which must have provoked the Jews considerably. As usual, the apostles' outreach was to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. When Jews would no longer listen, Titus Justus was probably a Roman citizen who had come to worship God under the influence of Jewish teaching. His hospitality offered Paul a relatively safe place from which to conduct his ministry. Now, it's an interesting thing that I discovered uh, in just doing research is that his name is... Gaius Titus Justus. Gaius was his, I don't want to say nickname, but it was what people called him, was Gaius. His official name was Justus uh, uh, Titus. Okay, So if you look up Gaius, uh, this is my uh, encyclopedia of Bible characters. And so I start out by looking up Titus. Now let's look up Gaius from Corinth. Gaius from Corinth is mentioned the greetings of Romans 16.23. Paul, when he writes to the Roman church, he greets Gaius. Paul stayed in his home while he was in Corinth, from where he wrote the letter to the Roman church. The fact that Paul says the whole church enjoyed his hospitality suggests that one of the churches may have met in his home. This is on Paul's second visit to Corinth in his third missionary journey. He's going to come back and he's going to stay with Gaius uh, Titus Justus. And in that time, he's going to write a letter to the Romans from this location. So Gaius, he was almost certainly the same Gaius as the one Paul baptized in his early days of the preaching in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.14. That baptism was obviously a rare occasion as Paul was more concerned to preach than to baptize. Paul had no desire to have anyone feel they belonged to him simply because he had baptized them. Paul's whole desire was that Christ alone should be glorified. Tradition holds that this Gaius later became bishop of Thessalonica. Okay, so it's just interesting. I just wanted to explain a little detail that this individual that we see here briefly also comes up um, in 1 Corinthians 1.14 and also in Paul's letter to the Romans that Gaius Titus Justus is mentioned. It's interesting stuff. Continuing on, uh, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. So this is interesting is, is that Crispus is the synagogue leader, the leader of the synagogue, the Jews in Corinth, the leader of the synagogue believed. No wonder there's so much turmoil. This guy, Paul, comes in, he's living among them, and in the time that he spends there preaching and teaching, the leader of the synagogue professes Jesus is the Messiah. No wonder there was so much division that was there. Then Paul gets a word of encouragement. And I do believe very strongly that if you do follow God and you follow his path for your life, 
in daily surrendering to him and just simply following wherever he leads you, you will get encouragement along the path at the exact moment you need it. We don't know what the context was of what was going on in Paul's life when he gets this word of encouragement directly from Christ, but he has a vision and the Lord speaks directly to Paul and says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. Now the question is, is the many people in the city, are they, is this a foretelling of many people that will convert to Christianity or is this saying that they're already there? We don't know. It's just interesting stuff. So now we're going to continue on to verse 12. There's clearly a break here of time, and I'll explain that, based um, simply on what happens in, in, in 12 through 17. Well, Galeo, Galeo, Galio, Galio, we'll go with Galio. While Galio was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia is the entire region that Athens and, and Corinth and the whole peninsula, the lower section of Greece, Achaia. The Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd turned on Sosithenus, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galio showed no concern whatsoever. So let's, let's break this up. So the Jews in Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. So this is clearly after uh, the year and a half that he's been there. This is near the end of his time in Corinth, and you'll see why. This man... They, 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 so they take him to the proconsul. The proconsul is a, a equivalent of the Supreme Court judge. And this town of Corinth is, would be the equivalent of uh, New York City. It's not the capital of the United States, but it's a huge, massive hub. So whatever this Supreme Court justice of the town of Corinth, the equivalent of New York City, I would say, whatever he says, it has a lot of weight to it. And that's the significance of, what, of why this is here. So the Jews bring... Paul to this Roman proconsul, the leader of Corinth, this man they charge is persuading the people to worship God in a way that is contrary to the law. So what does that mean? They reference the law. Is that referencing to Jewish law, the Levitical law, the Messianic law uh, of Moses, the, the Mosaic law, not Messianic, the Mosaic law? No, I don't think so. I think what they're talking about is, is that, again, Rome, their goal was to keep the peace. They wanted to hold the empire together by keeping the peace. So one of the laws that was passed is there were certain religions that were allowed to practice and do whatever they needed to do, and they were lawful to practice. Judaism was one of those laws was one of those religions that was lawful to practice. So, so long as you were a Jew and you practiced your Judaism and it didn't inflict on other people's religion, you were fine and the Romans allowed you to do that. Well, what these guys are claiming is, is that the Apostle Paul is coming in and he is preaching 
uh, a religion different than what is allowed and permissible under that law. So they are claiming to Galileo that this isn't Judaism. This is something different and it's not allowed to be worshipped or practiced. That's the argument that they're making. Now, the response that he gives is, is very profound and it's very significant and it, it sets a precedence. So what Galileo says is that this is an internal matter. This religion that is, exists, it is part of Judaism and that you guys need to solve it internally. That's the status that they have at this point in time. It's going to change down the road. And uh, in AD 70, I mean, it, it, it's the, the turmoil is going to increase across the whole Roman Empire to the extent that in AD 70, Titus comes down, the Roman general, and overthrows all of Jerusalem. So it's understandable there's a lot of tension that exists here. But Galileo says, I don't care. You guys are fighting and scribbling over small little details that do not matter to Rome. You just deal with it yourselves. Then we see uh, something interesting. So he drove them off. This was Galileo. Then the crowd, this is verse 17. Then the crowd turned on Sosithenes. So here's a question. This is an interesting. We have a contradiction here. Sosithenes, the synagogue leader. Okay, look over at Acts 18.8. Crispus, the synagogue leader. And then you have Sosithenes, the synagogue leader, in verse 16. So what's the deal? Are they both synagogue leaders? Well, so much time has passed that there's a very high probability that Sosithenes is the successor to Crispus. Crispus, as you recall, his entire household believe in Christ. He's not going to stay. The, the synagogue's not going to keep him as the leader of the Jews in Corinth. He's going to send them off. And so we do see, as a result of that, we see Sosithenes then becomes the leader of that synagogue. And the crowd, this is another question that we have, is this crowd, is the crowd, hi Lexi, yes, you want attention, but you're not going to get it, okay? I'm, I'm reading now. Okay, the crowd, in, in 17, the crowd, who is this crowd, okay? They turn on Sosithenes, the synagogue leader, and they beat him in front of Galileo. Galileo doesn't care, but who is the crowd? We do not know if the crowd is either Jews or Greeks. If it's Jews, it's because Sosithenes is believing in Christ, perhaps, and they oust him because he can't solve this, and they beat him in front of the proconsul. If it is the Greeks, it's because of the turmoil that's happening, and he's remaining a Jew, and it's just the conflict between Greeks and Jews. We don't know, but we do know that there's a lot of turmoil. So we continue on to verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed to Syria, accompanied by, a, by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of the vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, 
he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. This concludes his second missionary journey. And uh, 1823 is going to start his third missionary journey. Before we jump into that, let's dissect this small little chunk. It's a small little chunk, but, but we're going to go through it. So he stays in Corinth for a bit of time. Then he leaves the brothers and sisters and the Corinthian church. And with him travels uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Now we know from historical context of looking at Paul's letters, we know that Aquila and Priscilla are in Corinth from AD 50 to 53. AD 53, they then travel with the Apostle Paul to Ephesus. Paul then leaves and leaves them in Ephesus. They stay in Ephesus from AD 53 to 57. And then from 57 to 62, they travel and they stay and live in Rome from AD 57 to 62. We know this because of Paul's letters going back and forth, that he greets them when they're in Rome. And that is mentioned in Romans 16, 3 through 4. They're also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 19. Priscilla and Aquila are his friends. And in his letters going back and forth, he makes sure to greet them and say hello to them. Okay, so now here's a very curious verse that causes a great deal of tension today. And this is Acts 18, 18. At the end of Acts 18, the second half of it. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off because of a vow he had taken. So why is this such a point of tension? A vow he had taken. Jews at that day would take what's called a Nazarite vow. What's a Nazarite vow? A Nazarite vow, um, you can actually find, you can read all about it in Numbers chapter 6. The first 27 verses of chapter 6, all about the Nazarite vow. This is a vow that is in the, in Numbers, right? So it's in um, the law. It's it's part of the foundation. And if you were to take a Nazarite vow, there are five different things that were included in this vow. And you can read all about them uh, in number six. I'm not going to go in to explain all of these, but one of the steps was shaving your head. Um, and there were different things that you need to do while you're on this vow. Making a Nazarite vow was a really, really big deal and a big commitment of something you were committing to with all your heart and you're committing this to God. You are swearing to God that you are going to do X, whatever it might be. So why would this cause so much tension? Well, we just read Acts 15 a few weeks ago. Acts 15 was the Council of Jerusalem. And this is when they decided as a group in Jerusalem, they made it very, very clear that in order to be saved, all you need do is have faith in Jesus Christ. You do not need to follow the law. You don't, do not need to be circumcised. You do not need to eat specific meat. You don't need to do all these rules that the Jews had in place at the time. You don't have to do all that stuff. So, and we know Paul's perspective on this from reading all of Acts to this point. We know that Paul 
who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, understands the freedom and liberty that we have in Christ. But he also knows, and this is what we talked about in Acts chapter 15, we also know that there is freedom in Christ to be able to decide what you want to do, but not everything is lawful. The idea behind that is that you have freedom in Christ that not everything, excuse me, everything is permissible, not everything is expedient. Limit your, what is the line? I used it. Um, limit your liberty and love. That's right. That's what it was for Acts 15. And the idea is, is that you don't have to do things because they are the law, but you should choose to limit your liberty and love, meaning simply that you should still follow a few things just out of consciousness for those that are around you. Um, if you know, an example that I gave is alcohol, if that you know that your friend is a recovering alcoholic or still might be an alcoholic, you don't, uh, you have liberty. You can drink, you can choose to have a beverage. We aren't limited by the law in that sense, but limit your liberty and love. Don't have that drink in front of a person who struggles with alcoholism. So this is why this is a problem. If this was a Nazarene vow, He's going against what Paul had said in Acts 15 and everything that he's spoken about, and it's contradictory. It, it's uh, hypocritical because he is taking a vow that is listed in the law and he's following the law. I don't think this is the case. And the reason why I don't think it's the case is because of context. Read pretty much anything that Paul writes in all of his letters that he writes. There's freedom and, and so my guess is, is that if you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, in fact, I want to read that. Um, let's flip over to that. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's the next book over. I didn't mark it beforehand, so give me a second. Romans 12. Marker's there. Okay. So this is the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to the church in Rome, and he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the reason why I cite that verse, I would argue that Paul made some sort of a commitment to God. And as an outward symbol of that commitment, he chose to shave his head as an outward symbol of that commitment to God. He is turning his body over as a living sacrifice to God. I do not believe that he's doing it as uh, a Nazarite vow, uh, but that he is doing it simply uh, in a symbolic gesture. He's not doing it because he has to because he made a vow. He's doing it because he chose to. That's the extent of that little tangent. Okay, and then uh, let's pull up the map here. We see him uh, travel and conclude his second missionary journey, and he ends up in Antioch. Now we're going to pick it up on verse 23. This is the start of his third missionary journey. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He goes back a third time to those churches in Galatia. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, 
a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and thorough, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the, word, the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, so now uh, let's pull up the map here of his third missionary journey. So we start in Antioch. We go to Tarsus, Derby, and then the Galatian churches, which I couldn't remember the names of, are Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch are the, the three main churches that are in the Galatia region, uh, as well as Derby is technically in Galatia. Then he travels on to Ephesus, and that's where we leave um, Acts 18 and go into 19 as Paul is still in Ephesus before he continues on in his third missionary journey. So let's break up this last little chunk before we conclude. Apollos. Apollos. Uh, this is an interesting element. So we know that there's this individual named Apollos who is a solid believer, but his doctrine is slightly off. And you see an amazing example here of Priscilla and Aquila. They come back, they invite Apollos into their home, and they explain with gentleness and understanding, they explain the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. Now, the difference between those really quick and simply, John the Baptist, as you recall, John the Baptist, he was the baptizer. He baptized people with a baptism of repentance. Turn from your sinful ways and turn towards God. Stop doing what you're doing. Repentance is the idea of uh, an about face. You're going down this way, repent and turn back. Repent and turn to God, which is a wonderful thing, but, but it's not baptism into the Holy Spirit. Baptism into the Holy Spirit under Christ is this idea of a renewing, being born again, as Christ talked about and explained to Nicodemus. As you recall, that's in Matthew. I don't remember the chapter, but it's a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, about the fact that you have to be born again. And the idea of being born again, for those that have heard that term, I'm a born again believer, I'm a born again Christian, the idea simply is, is that your soul is reborn and dedicated over to Christ. Baptism is a physical representation of an inward manifestation. It's showing outwardly to all of your peers and to the world that you are surrendering your, your whole existence over to Christ and that you are born again. And the idea is when you come out of that water, it's a symbolic representation of coming out of that water anew, reborn in Christ. You now have said and declared, I belong to God. I belong to Christ. And that's the idea between the two is, is that when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are now surrendering your life over and at that the Holy Spirit will come and live in you. 
We are vessels, the Bible talks about. We are homes. We are temples for the Holy Spirit, that peace of God that lives in us. And if you had only heard the message of repentance, that's a good message. It's not a bad message, but it misses the ultimate critical point of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so you see here two things that are really profound and important takeaways. One, you see correction. You see two believers that are not leaders in the church necessarily. They, are, they, they might have had roles as deacons, but they're a husband and wife that are prominent figures in the church. By prominent figures, I simply mean they are, they are active people in the church in Ephesus. And this individual that clearly is a leader, clearly is a speaker, clearly is an evangelist that's on fire and is preaching comes in and they gently correct him. And the way they correct him is by showing him in love the difference perspective. Now, here's a very important thing. We see from Apollos, Apollos, A-P-O-L-L-O-S, Apollos, we see him accept the correction. He listens, he understands, and he takes it to heart, and he grows because of it. So when you, in your church, within your fellowship, within your sphere of influence, if you know someone is in your network and their, their interpretation of doctrine, of important, significant elements of Christianity is slightly off, invite him out for a cup of coffee and make sure you have scripture to back it up and then say in love that, hey, I noticed you said this and... I've always interpreted the scripture to mean this, and I just wanted to talk to you about that. This is what you said. This is the interpretation of scripture that I believe, and this is, these are the verses that I used to back it up. So this, I just wanted to share this with you and just, just have a heart-to-heart -heart about it. An arrogant person will not take well to that. They will not take well to criticism. But a person who is striving to follow after Christ and is humble in Christ and realizing that we are all sinners and that we really don't know a whole heck of a lot, will be humble and will be receptive to correction and will listen. And then like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, they will study the scriptures themselves. And they'll go and they'll listen to that word of correction and they'll study the scriptures. And then they'll change their heart and their mind and, and what they're teaching or what they're sharing based on that new knowledge that their friend shared. It's a good example that we see it's a very good example. So that then concludes Acts 18. So what is the takeaway here? What is the big picture of Acts 18? You see quite a few different characters in this, right? You see the two different synagogue leaders. We know that one of them at least believed and opened up his home and that the Corinthian church flourished there. We see Priscilla and we see Aquila a husband and wife duo that are tent makers that are host to Paul. There's stipulation that uh, Priscilla and Aquila have a tent making business that actually has multiple different um, um, hubs or franchises, so to speak, in that they, they spend time in Rome and Ephesus and in Corinth. Then we also see... Um, Apollos is another character that we see. 
uh, and then we see the Apostle Paul. So I come back to this question. What does it look like to serve God? Do we all need to be the Apostle Paul? Do we all need to be like the young rich ruler who says, what must I do to be saved to Jesus? And Jesus responds to him individually. He says, there's one thing that you lack. You must sell all your possessions and then follow me. So does that mean that if you are to be a good Christian, you need to sell everything that you have and go be like Paul and go on the missionary journey, go to a third world country and proclaim the gospel? Maybe. I would argue not likely. The thing that's interesting is that every single one of these individuals is serving God where they are. Priscilla and Aquila open up their home. Paul is a tent maker for a year and a half. He spends time vocationally. He is preaching and sharing the gospel and just showing the love of Christ to his network. This is an interesting element that I want you to think about is that so often we think we must have a paycheck from a church in order to be in full-time ministry. But the reality is you might do better and do more good in a secular job, in your secular sphere of influence as a Christian than you would in full-time ministry. I have quite a few friends that unfortunately have been burned out by big mega churches, by the big box. I call it burned out by the box. They went into full-time ministry because they wanted to serve God. And they are finding that they have more influence not in the church. Why is that? Because if you as a Christian always live in your Christian bubble, Christians are, we're, we're called to be salt, right? That Jesus talks about that. Be salt and light. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we're supposed to be Salt. Well, salt is an awesome thing when added in moderation. When spread out lightly, you put a little salt on your steak, it's delicious. But if you put a whole salt shaker full of salt on the steak, it's going to taste horrible. Christians, we are called to be that way as well. We are called to go out and be the flavoring, to be the salt and the light. And so for me, my sphere of influence, I am a photographer. And in the wedding industry, I work every weekend with vendors. I work every weekend with couples. And then during the week, when I'm on commercial shoots, I'm interacting with people that aren't Christians. If I was in full-time ministry and exclusively doing these videos and not interacting with people they wouldn't have any context of what it looks like to be a Christian because my sphere would exclusively be little tiny, little tiny sphere of Christians. And while that's a safe bubble to exist in, it doesn't show the world what it means to be a Christian. So go out, go out of your comfort zone and show the world what it looks like to be a Christian, be the light of Christ doesn't mean that you stand up on your desk and you, you, you proclaim Christ to your whole office. It just means that you reflect Christ in your interactions, in your relationships with every single person you interact with. We don't have to be the Apostle Paul. We don't have to be Billy Graham. We don't have to be Apollos uh, in this story of Acts uh, 18. We very well might be um, an intern at the tent-making company. 
We very well might be just simply a husband and wife that open up their home to who knows who is going through what struggle. It very well might be that you are a mom, that your responsibility is to love on your kids and raise those kids. And who knows, one of your kids' best friends might learn of Christ simply through the interaction with your family and seeing your family. And later on in life, they might be like, man, their family was so awesome. They were so tight and, and they always went to church. But they, they, there's something different about that family. I want to learn more about that family. So in everything you do, this is my call today. This is my challenge to you today, is that don't feel like you need to be this amazing disciple. Yes, if God calls you to do that, great, do that. Do that with all your might. But we are called to be disciples, and our mission field is right where we are right now. So that's my challenge to you, and I hope that it's a word of encouragement to you this week. Why don't you guys bow your heads? Let's close it out with prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are able to use us wherever we are. That you plant us where we're at right now for a reason, for a purpose. I pray, Lord, that you would, in that still small voice, speak to each person that's listening to this now and explain to us why it is where we are where we are and what we're called to do and the relationships we're supposed to have. Thank you for using us. Thank you that we are the body of Christ. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for your word, for the story of Paul. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a closing verse that uh, I want you to look up. This is your homework. This is the first time I've ever given homework that I recall. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. The reason why I gave you this to read and look up is that this is the Apostle Paul in his letter that he writes in Corinth, uh, excuse me, to the Corinthians. He writes this letter to the Corinthian church that he starts in Acts chapter 18. And it directly correlates back to the fact that we are the body of Christ and that we together, all of us have a role to play. And though we cannot see exactly what our role might be, we know because we are part of the body of Christ, we are called to do whatever that role is with all of our hearts. So that's it for this week. I love you guys, and I will see you next week. Have a phenomenal week. We're going to continue on to Acts chapter 19 as we're going to continue to see Paul uh, journey on his third missionary journey. Have a good week.